Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we're so excited to welcome Dahlia Schweitzer to read and chat with me about her new book, Haunted Homes. Before I introduce her, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing. We're open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit us. And we are also offering online ordering through our beautiful newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. And now to introduce you to Dahlia. Dahlia Schweitzer is an associate professor in film and media studies at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Her latest book, Haunted Homes, examines the haunted house as it appears in American film and television and the ways it signifies the anxieties, traumas, and terrors of suburban American life. Her previous books include LA Private Eyes, Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World, Cindy Sherman's Office Killer, Another Kind of Monster, as well as essays in publications including Journal of Popular Film and Television, Jump Cut, and Journal of Popular Culture. Welcome, Dahlia. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I am so excited to be here. (laughs) All those books that you just listed um, were sort of birthed into the world with an event at Skylight Books. And a handful of them are on our shelves. I saw them when I was reading my copy of Haunted Homes. <laughs> and I bet that they are autographed. Okay. Um, because I know I, I autographed uh, or signed, I guess they say, um, a, a stack of them during all the respective events. So awesome. I was very excited to also be able to birth this book um, with uh, Skylight Books podcast. We are, and hopefully there will be another one soon that we can have you back. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but we love to have returning authors on our podcast. And so we're excited to start a new little tradition with you today. Yay. I Yay. love Skylight Books. <laughs> Do you want to read us a little something from Haunted Homes? I would be delighted. Um, I'm actually going to start by reading a little bit from the introduction and a little bit from the conclusion. Um, and then depending on how our timing goes, maybe I'll read a little bit from the middle. Um, So here is uh, a little bit from the introduction to just kind of at the scene. So many discussions of horror films and specifically those set in the domestic arena tend to be ahistorical, treating modern day narratives as though they are simply a continuation of European Gothic novels from the 18th century. However, this simplification does a disservice to the particular nuances of the haunted home narrative, a style of storytelling uniquely tied to the evolution of the suburban United States and the suburban home specifically. For almost a century, Hollywood has been delivering memorable portrayals of evil homes full of lingering trauma, malevolent ghosts, and sometimes even portals to hell. While Paul Lenny's The Cat and the Canary from 1927, in which a family is terrorized in a creepy mansion, may have been the first film to establish the look and feel of the haunted home, other films, such as James Whale's aptly titled The Old Dark House from 1932, in which travelers taking solace from rain are terrified by the residents of yet another creepy mansion, as well as Lewis Allen's The Uninvited from 1944, in which a brother and sister impulsively buy an abandoned house only to discover that it comes with ghosts. 
kept expanding its parameters. More recently, the success of Mike Flanagan's Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House from 2018, loosely based on Shirley Jackson's novel of the same name, which gets many mentions in this book, uh, in which a family revisits the haunted home of their youth, as well as movies like Ari Aster's Hereditary, also from 2018, in which a family is haunted by evil spirits, demonstrates the continued appeal of watching sinister forces encroach on the domestic front. Sometimes these forces are literal, sometimes they are confined to nightmares and dreamscapes, but the end result remains the same. Home is where the horror is. This premise is all the more remarkable since homes are traditionally equated with safety and sanctuary. After all, when do you feel more safe? than when you return home, letting the door close behind you, the outside world kept at a distance. However, the template of the haunted home narrative plays precisely on the paradox of that premise, bringing fear into the otherwise placid home, perverting the satisfying accomplishment of the American dream with abject terror and financial, if not also physical, ruin. But why? On the one hand, we have persistent messaging that suburbia is bliss, full of happy families, green lawns, and well-adjusted children, even if also a bit boring and homogenous. On the other hand, however, we have the stubborn appeal of movies and television shows determined to show us that that bliss is a lie, that true horror begins and ends at home, and that safety will never be achieved until the family house, that ultimate indicator of American success and status, is shrinking in the rearview mirror. This book examines not only the growth of the suburban neighborhood, but also its long-term impact on American identity and the American family as depicted in U.S. film and television. Suburbia is not just an architectural choice or geographic preference. Suburbia establishes and reinforces specific modes of behavior, not all of which come with messages of opportunity and hope. It shifts focus to the family while at the same time isolating the family from other people and the individual members from each other. It is a fundamental rethinking of the relationship between city and home, between husband and wife, between job and family, between private and public space. While most of the texts discussed in this book are set in stereotypical American suburbia, not all are. For example, the film and television adaptations of Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House, are set in an isolated 19th century mansion rather than in a modern suburban home. The haunted homes in The Innocence and The Witch are situated in pre-suburban pasts and a handful of movies discussed in this book are located outside the United States. I have opted to include those films for the effective ways they depict my arguments. For instance, once you understand how the family is literally isolated in a 19th century mansion, it is easier to understand and observe more contemporary incarnations of the same isolation. As Davy Armstrong explains via voiceover in the movie Summer of 84, just past the manicured lawns and friendly waves inside any house, even the one next door, anything could be happening and you'd never know. It all might seem normal and routine, 
But the truth is the suburbs are where the craziest stuff happens. This book is about that crazy stuff and what it tells us about ourselves. And in the quote, he didn't say the word stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I don't know how we're doing for time, but I can read an excerpt from the conclusion or we can chat. Yeah, go ahead and read a little from the conclusion because I had some things I wanted to ask you about it. So you can okay. preface that for us. Okay, um, so I start off by talking about um, the infiltration of technology into everyday life and how the um, internal space has sort of been consumed by technology. Um, and I talk about how uh, private personal space, that space in which we should feel most human, has been consumed by tools that encourage the opposite. Um, and I start off by talking about paranormal activity, uh, which of course is a, very famously uses technology to document the supernatural forces that are haunting the home in question. The infiltration of technology erodes not only boundaries between public and private, but also those between past and present. Technology blends both time and space, making everything appear to be now and nearby. This further intertwines the past with the present, ensuring that the future comes complete with plenty of residual baggage, literalizing the blurring of timelines seen in movies such as The Haunting of Hill House. A remake of the Japanese horror film Ringu, The Ring stars Naomi Watts as a journalist researching a videotape that causes the subsequent death of anyone who watches it. A critical and commercial success, The Ring not only spawned two sequels, as well as encouraging subsequent English language remakes of countless, countless other Asian horror films, but also serves as an interesting reflection on how technology has been integrated into horror movies. Eric White argues that the film associates ubiquitous technological mediation, that is the cameras, television sets, video cassette recorders, telephones, and other such hardware foregrounded through the film with the intrusion of post-human otherness into contemporary cultural life. Otherness now rides in on wireless frequencies. Oh. Did you hear that? Um, should I read that section again? Um, or was it enough at the end? We got to the otherness part. So that was I uh, cultural contemporary otherness. Like we heard that. And then I'm going to timestamp that. Uh, so you can finish. Uh, OK. I don't know how to make it so that my phone doesn't come through on my computer. Oh, <laughs> I, um, I also uh, have no idea. <laughs> oh, okay. There's your there's, cat. There's one. That's uh, one of them. There's another one. You better not be noisy. You're noisy. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. So we got enough of that excerpt? Yeah. Um, okay. If there was like, I don't know if there was uh, one like if that was the end of that paragraph or if you wanted to like finish up a little no, that bit. Was, that was the end of that paragraph. Otherness now rides in on wireless frequencies. frequencies. Okay. okay. Um, then I think uh, we are good there. And uh, I've made a note and we will. And it was a scam phone call. Like it wasn't <laughs> even like 
a very important phone call. Um, okay. Oh, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. It's too noisy. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, what I wanted to start with was that this is my favorite kind of book <laughs> because, um, it is a book that takes a bunch of different things that I have thought about before or when I'm watching a horror movie with a group of friends, we're pointing out all of these uh, tropes and things that we see and you've laid a lot of them out here, but you've constructed them so that I'm forced to look at them through a different lens that I haven't before, um, which is my favorite kind of writing, something that makes me look at something in a way I had never thought of or didn't consider. And so I wanted to ask you what sort of triggered your imagination or your thought process to think about haunted homes as opposed to haunted houses and how you kind of came to create that sort of switch or not even really a switch, but just a shift. Um. For me, I think what I was specifically trying to get at with the term home versus house is specifically the idea of the domestic space. And that's why, for instance, in the book, I don't talk about hotels that are haunted. Mm -hmm. um, I don't talk about haunted houses as in the like the recreational uh, space that's set up around Halloween at like Universal Studios or whatever. Uh, what interested me the most was the idea of terror in the domestic sphere. <laughs> um, and you really, from the domestic sphere as itself, which you, you then talk about the house being a part of the home, um, like for instance, with uh, the haunting of Hill House, which uh, is mentioned a lot throughout the book, which I loved because that was one of my favorite uh, series when it came out. Um, but the house, it may not be about the, the house itself, but the house is its own character in a lot of ways. Yeah, so one of the, so I think there were, there were a couple different ways in which I approached this. So you asked what kind of triggered the whole project. And what triggered the whole project was, I've actually never been a big fan of horror movies. And what's funny is I'm kind of forced, and forced is in quotes, uh, to take deep dives into genres that would not normally appeal to me as a result of various writing projects. So for instance, when I was working on my Going Viral book, when I initially was, sort of figuring out the overall structure, I was like, I'm not gonna get into zombie movies. I don't really like zombie movies. I think zombie movies are kind of boring. A lot of them <laughs> are just the same thing over and over again. And I'm dealing with movies in which there's infection. So I'm dealing more from like a biological horror kind of standpoint and not zombie movies. And then once I started to work on that project, I was like, oh, I actually need to talk about zombie movies a lot <laughs> because 
that's where those narratives are right now. You know, this idea of zombiness is like an, an infection. Um, and with horror movies, when I was a kid, I was kind of a scaredy cat and I didn't watch horror movies, like very, very rarely. I remember uh, it, was, it was a really big deal the first time I watched The Shining and I did it, you know, it was like with a friend in her living room. Like it was like, it was an event because this was not something I normally did. And um, uh, so I, I hadn't watched all these horror movies. And then after the election in 2016, I felt like I really needed to distract myself. And I, it, it didn't feel sort of socially appropriate or relevant to watch like a rom-com. You know, it was <laughs> like the world was on fire and I needed to watch a horror movie. Um, and so I, I decided to kind of catch up on all those horror movies that I hadn't watched when I was a kid because I was afraid. So I went and I watched like all the Halloween movies and I watched all the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and I started watching the Amityville movies and I'm, a, I'm like a completist. So I was like, yeah. I'm going to watch all the Amityville movies. <laughs> and then I realized that there are like 18 Amityville movies. So it was like, okay, I have to like, not be quite so compulsive. And at, at some point I called it a day. Um, the, the, the final one was, as just an aside, there's one, and I talk about it in the book, um, where the premise is that the, the dad is like a real estate developer and he takes a business trip to the Amityville house or like the neighborhood where like to Amityville. And then he finds a clock that had mm. been in the Amityville house. And then and he, he brings, brings it back. clock home. And then that sets off all the evil events. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, <laughs> you don't even, like, you don't even see the Amityville house. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Um, but so that's kind of where it all started. I'm watching all these movies. And of course they're all set in basically suburbia and all this, the horrible events happen in the home. And, in, you know, homes that are in suburbia where, you know, bad things aren't supposed to happen in suburbia. And so I was like, this is really weird. Why is this happening over and over again? You know, and as I kind of touch on in, in the introduction, home is where you're supposed to feel safe, right? Home is where you get back, you close the door, you take off your shoes, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, my boss can't reach me here. Mm -hmm. um, and yet that's where all the evil happens. And just this idea of like, you don't breathe a sigh of relief as an audience member until you see the home in the rear view mirror, or in some of these, you see the home like, you know, on fire, yeah, um, being destroyed. And so that's kind of the, what the initial impetus was for the project, this idea of terror in the domestic sphere. Um, and then Oh, and then you were talking, you asked about the sentient. So then I was sort of like, okay, so obviously one of the big questions, and I talk about um, Eddie Murphy had this stand-up routine called Delirious that at this point feels like it came out a million years ago, but it came out in the 80s. And one of the things that he touches on is like, well, why don't the people just leave, right? And this is the same kind of question of like, you know, why does the girl go into the basement when she hears a strange noise? And it's like, well, yeah. obviously they can't leave because there'd be no movie, but it is weird that over and over again, these people move into a house, the ha they eventually figure out the house is haunted, but they don't leave, right? And so it's like, well, why don't they leave? What is it that traps them in the home? And that became a really interesting question for me. Um, and 
one of the sort of plot points that shows up is that the house is sentient, right? That the house has these sort of human-like characteristics. And so it traps them in, in a kind of like a psychological way. Um, and that happens in various permutations throughout all these narratives. But this idea of the home as this like evil thing, right? You know, with its eyes looking at you or it's just kind of psychologically messing with you um, and that you can't escape from it. And of course, one of the things that I found so fascinating about The Haunting of Hill House is the way that long after they leave the house, they're still dealing with kind of the residual trauma of it. So it's like, even once they've left the house, they're still not safe. Some, a note that I think is pertinent to Hill House, and I, it was specifically the book, uh, and I think some other examples you listed too, but that there were architectural um, abnormalities in the houses. When they were built, they had certain tilts or slants in certain walls that made it like that made it look like the house was either looking at you or <laughs> giving you a weird look or that could make you feel like a room was more encapsulating physically than it should be uh, because of the way the corners met or something along those lines, which I thought was an interesting note too, that um, it may not just be say your perception of something, but you have no idea the reasons that someone built something this way. Um, whether maybe they were possessed by something that caused them to build a house that then became sentient in that way. Um, all these possibilities there, but I loved that note as well. And um, on the topic of why people stay, um, again, something that I've always acknowledged when it comes up in these movies, because it comes up in almost all of them, but that you brought up in a way that made me think about it differently was they've sunk all their money into it mm -hmm. and they can't leave. So it, it is, you just sort of put a, um, like a sociological <laughs> spin on this idea that, yeah, they say they can't leave because they've sunk all their money into the house and they have nowhere else to go. They didn't have a lot of money to begin with. They were only able to afford this haunted rundown house that they now have to fix up. Um, and so I wanted to see if you could share a little bit about that that thought process and the idea of putting those pieces together. Sure. And um, what's interesting, just to go back to what you were saying about the the sort of the architectural details being a little bit off. Um, this is from The Haunting of Hill House, the, the book that Shirley Jackson wrote. Um, and she actually writes that the house seemed to have formed itself. So it's not like you know, there's like a very clever architect who's designing the home in a way that's supposed to destabilize, but she's saying that, you know, the house has sort of constructed itself in a way where um, the walls seemed always in one direction, a fraction longer than the eye could endure, and in another direction, a fraction less than the barest possible tolerable length. Um, so there are all these different tiny little aberrations that add up to a fairly large distortion in the house as a whole. So it is, it's all these like little elements. Um, and then in the book, I also talk about the Winchester house mm -hmm. uh, and this idea, and this goes back to one of the motifs in the book, which is this, you know, the relationship between 
sort of latent trauma and the haunting um, and how the Winchester house has this like crazy design because um, the Winch Mrs. Winchester kept adding extensions to the house uh, because she felt like as long as the house was under construction, um, she would be sort of protected. Um, but anyway, so yes. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is the, the economic um, impact of sort of the suburban ideal onto these narratives. And so, yeah, again, another question is, you know, why aren't they leaving? And what turns up over and over and over again is they can't leave because they can't afford to because they have sunk all their money into the house. And what I unpack in the book is that suburbs are really a uniquely American phenomenon. So this idea of having the city as this sort of like, you know, densely populated area where people work and then the suburbs where there isn't a lot of, um, you know, real like sort of business infrastructure or whatever, but it's sort of like, that's the desirable place to live, you know, and it goes back to like the industrial revolution where, you know, the cities were seen as, um, you know, very sort of like toxic and polluted and crowded and whatever, right? And so we start getting to this idea of like, everybody wants to live outside the city, right? It's more desirable to live outside the city. And it's interesting because you see it happening right now um, during COVID where, you know, everybody wanted to leave the city and get a house and a yard and all this. And there's this real idea of the American dream being home ownership. Right. And you have, you know, the, the stereotype of like the white picket fence and the, the grassy yard and um, the opening sequence to Blue Velvet really just portrays this brilliantly. Right. Where you just have this, the, 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 the just like the bright, bright green and the bright, bright blue of the sky, you know, and all these like the white homes and like the and the the fire truck kind of going by with the firemen waving. Happily. Right. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, so Pleasant though. It's Pleasant. like Pleasantville. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there's a lot of pressure that's placed on us to, you know, get married, have kids, buy a home, you know, not necessarily in that order. And a lot of people buy homes that they can't afford. And I break down at length in the book, sort of the way that suburbia was constructed was that it was designed for people to buy homes they couldn't afford, right? And just the whole notion of mortgages, right? I mean, nobody, unless you're like a drug dealer, it's like nobody shows up to buy a house with a bag of cash. You yeah. know, it's like you show up, you put down five to 10%, and then you pay off this mortgage for 30 years. Um, and so you, you're, t you're, you're cash poor, right? You're tied to the house. Um, and so of course that becomes this omnipresent plot device where you can't afford to leave, you know? And so you have people moving into this home or, you know, and this, you also see this a lot, like in the Amityville movie where people buy homes and the only reason they can afford them is because murders were committed in the house, you know, something and, horrible, uh, but it's yeah. like, we're going to be fine. That's in the past. We're getting it for a bargain. And you know, um, you know, the rest. <laughs> and then on that. So that whole plot point usually ends up uh, being a part of the male character's storyline or the father's storyline or the, the husband or whoever. Um, and in one of the other sections in the book, you talk about the 
bad mom, essentially. Um, and you talked a lot about this movie with Kate Beckinsale that I have never seen. Um, and it just sounded like she was treated so horribly. I put it on my to watch list um, because I needed to see. But I wondered if you could uh, talk about that connection as well. Just the the idea that these women are not doing enough, even if it was their idea to come to this house. They also put their money into it. It was a joint decision, yet they somehow are the ones who always get blamed. Um, another example of that was in Hereditary um, and a few others, but that Kate Beckinsale movie specifically, some of those examples you cited just made me feel so bad for her, not even having seen the film. Um, I know that, I mean, again, a lot of this has to do with just the way that Hollywood portrays, yeah. um, portrays women, but I know that the, the disappointments room is one that just made me very mad. Um, and it made me so mad and I haven't even seen it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's in, in some ways it's, um, I mean, again, the, so the, the trope that tends to happen in these movies, another one that, that, uh, is really jarring, um, is the entity. That's the one where the woman gets raped over and over again by a ghost and no one believes her. Oh God. Um, and it's just like, well, that's a little close to home. Uh, but she's literally like, she goes to her doctor and she's got bruises and she's like, you know, I'm getting raped. And the doctor's like, that's not possible. Um, I mean, it's, it's like, whoo, but yeah. So in the disappointments room, um, you, you see, uh, so I guess, okay. So some of the tropes that you get are, um, you know, that the, the mother isn't taking proper care of the child. Um, and again, proper care, what does that even mean? But in the yeah. disappointments room, um, and I'll just read uh, the little summary that I wrote, but in the disappointments room, the implicit, implicit message is that Dana Barrow, the Kate Beckinsale character, serves to be punished not only for the accidental death of her baby, failure number one, but also for the near killing of her son, failure number two, as well as for failing to release or protect the spirit of young Laura, failure number three, who died in the house during the 1800s. So again, her baby dies accidentally, not her fault, right? And then when she almost kills her son, she actually thinks she's protecting him, right? She's not like an evil and malicious person. Yeah. And then she's she fails to um, to release the ghost haunting the house, right? But she's kind of blamed for it. Um, and then I talk about how, you know, her husband, it's not very clear what his job is, right? But she, <laughs> she's like, you know, very well employed. Well, and um, didn't, you, didn't you say he, it's, I thought that she was the breadwinner in this yeah. situation also, yeah. Yeah, so she, she clearly has um, a job, right? We see her, I can't remember if she's, she's like an architect, um, I, I think she was. And then because there's also a uh, you mentioned that they're going to do construction on the house. And right, that's right. Yes. She, yes, she is telling the contractor, you can do this and this. And the husband's like, no, just start now. You can. I, I believe in you. And she's yeah. like, no, I no, that's not <laughs> what's going to be happening. And he's like, no, don't listen to her. It's fine. You you take care of your construction things. And yeah. Exactly. So um, 
the, there's like a leak in this house that they just bought. Um, a contractor that they don't even know, right? They have no references, shows up and he's like, I can fix it. And she's like, I don't know. And yeah, and then David walks in and he's like, oh, when do you start? Um, and then, so yeah, so she's an architect. I know she has something to do with, um, you know, building homes and stuff. Um, and then also, you know, we see her being primarily in charge of childcare, we see her doing the cooking, um, she's doing the unpacking, right? And then she's also the one that has the full-time job. Um, and then he's the one who's like talking to her psychiatrist on her behalf. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's, it's very disheartening, let's put it that way. Yeah, and I, that, that one specifically really, I, I think it might've been because it was a movie that I hadn't seen and I wanted to watch it to see, but I, it also felt like it would be one of those movies that if I had seen it when I was younger, I might've thought like, oh, this is a compelling horror, like a horror movie that I enjoyed right. watching and to watch it again, especially after having read your book, I would have been pissed. <laughs> well, also the haunted mansion. Yeah, that I have not seen that since I was a kid and you talking about how emasculating the women are to Eddie Murphy in that movie. I thought, no, it's it's based on a ride at a theme park. It can't have complicated themes like that. <laughs> well, so the Eddie, the idea of sort of like the emasculated black male, for sure, but also the fact that Eddie Murphy's wife is treated like po property. Yeah. You know, that she's like this possession that the men are fighting over and like, what she wants is sort of irrelevant. I mean, it's just, yeah, some of these movies you go back and you revisit and you're just cringing, cringing. Well, and so moving moving into the conclusion, which I also loved because you sort of brought up a topic and were, and then left us with, well, let's see where we go from here because you're not the one out here making these movies. So you said, let's see where we go from here. Um, which I, I thought was so interesting to move from something that, um, I mean, suburbia isn't, is very much a present situation. It is not in the past, but from something that feels so sort of past timey, all American to technology, which is now, and we think about the future and moving forward. Um, but I want, I, it got me thinking about if we know all of these tropes, if we see how they're all played out, if they continue to represent not only women and other minorities and people of color very poorly um, consistently. And there are no examples of a compelling or um, interesting story about women, anyone in the LGBTQIA plus community or people of color. What do we want from these movies? Or what do we, are we content to continue to see the same stories told um, with slightly more well-written or compelling characters in the same situations? Or how do we keep them interesting enough while deeply exploring these ideas that you've brought to us? Well, I do, I do think that there is, um, there's no reason why you can't have more horror movies with gay people or more horror movies with black families, you know, like, um, 
why do we have to have like if if there's um a horror movie that has some diversity it's like you'll have like the one token black character who maybe is brought in as an expert you know probably is a zombie or voodoo expert you know i mean it's always that kind of it's like a very sort of token um example but i think as you see from you know the appeal of us, for instance, like Jordan Peele's Us, uh, as you see from the incredible and much deserved success of Get Out, uh, there is room to in incorporate these sort of deeper, more complex racial issues. Um, I think Hereditary is interesting for the way that it tackles questions of gender, right? So it's like, you know, they don't all have to be um, these these like very superficial sort of case studies, right? And I think, I, I know I also talk a lot about Hereditary um, because I find it a very fascinating movie, but I, t I talk in the book about, you know, suburbia and I think it's so interesting in Hereditary where the mom is constructing these little miniature um, kind of like dioramas sort of right these like little miniature doll houses and stuff like that and again it's this it, it's sort of interrogating this idea of how women are always trying to construct the perfect home and she's constructing it on this very small scale while her real life home is you know falling, falling apart, apart around her um so i do think that when the right director comes along who like jordan peele has a grasp on sort of complex issues of race. Um, you, there are a lot of places that you can go. I talk in the book, even though it's not haunted, um, I talk about the movie, we need to talk about Kevin, the Lynn Ramsey movie. Be even though, and I mentioned in the book, it's not a haunted house, but it, it deals with this idea of the bad mother. And that is a fantastic, fantastic movie for how it deals with the, you know, the, the, the isolation of suburbia and the pressures of parenthood and all that. So I do think that when the right director comes along, hopefully Hollywood lets them do it. Um, and I think, you know, maybe more sort of streaming platforms like Netflix and Hulu. And I know like um, Blumhouse has this arrangement with, now with Amazon and they've had an arrangement with Hulu uh, where they were making a lot of horror movies for those specific platforms. So I remain optimistic. <laughs> I think there's also a smaller streaming uh, network called Shudder yeah, I yes. think they're moving into originals as well, which would be interesting. Yes, and I know uh, that I think at least two of the movies in my book you can only find on Shudder. Uh, so yes, Shudder is a great resource, and so hopefully we start to have a little bit more diversity. And I know, like I talk in my book about one of the very few haunted homes with a queer family and mm -hmm. um, I'm blanking on the name, um, but that's on Shudder. Well, Dahlia, it has been so spooky and fun to talk to you about haunted homes today. Do you have any uh, upcoming events or things you want to plug before we close out? Because we're still dealing with the COVID fallout, everything is online, mm -hmm. uh, but people can follow me on Instagram or Twitter and um, things will be posted as as they are recorded. We'll put it that way. 
Perfect. Thank you again to Dahlia for reading for us from Haunted Homes and for talking to me today. Once again, our guest today has been Dahlia Schweitzer. You can order her new book, Haunted Homes, as well as her other fabulous titles, which some of which I think are signed on our shelves at Skylight from www.skylightbooks.com. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you soon.